This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Has anyone ever said to you, maybe in the course of a Bible study or a spiritual discussion even that's more casual in nature, conversational, wherein you had a difference of opinion or a difference of understanding with someone and they said, oh, you're just being legalistic or that's the legalistic view or maybe they'll even go so far as to say you're being pharisaical or something like this. Uh, what do they mean by that? Uh, you know, a lot of times that accusation is leveled, I think, without either the accuser or the receiver understanding what those terms mean biblically. Of course, one of them is biblical and the other is not found in the Bible. Um, but no one we can usually agree on, no one wants to be a Pharisee or called a Pharisee or share any of their behaviors. Because while there are a few notable, admirable examples like Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, and Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. For the most part, there's a lot of negative connotations surrounding that word with good reason because of the individuals described in the New Testament who identified with this sect. Uh, and so I want to think about these terms in this episode. And I want to begin by thinking about what legalism is not. Uh, and one of the things that it's not is it's, it is not loyalty to and trust in the word of God. Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So I think in an extreme view, at least in my experience, I've heard people use the label legalist or the idea of legalism as any kind of adherence to the written word or law. Uh, they might even go so far as to say that there is no law under the New Testament dispensation, uh, despite Scripture to the contrary, where, for example, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 9 that he is under the law of Christ, and I don't think he's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking literally as James is in James chapter 1, when he speaks of the law of liberty to which um, we are to live by and are held accountable to. At least I think it's James chapter 1. It might be chapter 2. But just take as the basic fundamental point here from John 14 that Jesus is teaching that we need to have absolute trust in the Word of God as it's been handed down to us in written form of the New Testament. And notice, too, that for Christ, love for Him as a being, God the Son and His Father, that love for Christ is inseparably joined with a desire to keep His Word. In other words, nobody can mean anything by saying, I love Jesus, but at the same time, disparage or diminish, diminish what he has said. Um, and then accuse someone of being a legalist for wanting to study and obey the words of Christ. Um, 
and saying that they have no no love for him, no love for the person uh, when they when they do that. Uh, it's it's re- biblically it's nonsensical, right? Because Jesus is marrying the two ideas that if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And so legalism is not loyalty to and trust in, in the word of God. It's quite quite the opposite. Um, this is love for God, to trust in his word, to seek a greater understanding of it. And so legalism is not then stressing the need to obey the scriptures because this is what Jesus means by keeping his word. Right? He's talking about obedience. He doesn't use that word specifically there. But that's what he's talking about. He does elsewhere, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments in that same chapter in verse 15. And Paul will affirm later, as all the apostles do, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. And so you see this reorientation constantly throughout the New Testament and in the epistles and in the teaching of Christ this reorientation toward what God has said, not glorifying subjective hearts of men or how one feels or religious experience, but rather the very concrete and objective words that God have has handed down to us and preserved for us. Uh, so this is not uh, legalism if that's a bad word or something that we want to avoid, if someone wants to call you a legalist for you're stressing the need to obey scriptures and you're looking for authority in the word of God, well, then you're actually in good company because Jesus and the apostles stress the very same thing. And furthermore, legalism is not linking salvation with obedience to the word of God. Because the Bible also does this. As it describes Jesus in Hebrews 5.9, it says that having been made perfect, he, that is Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation unto all who obey him. And again, by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So, grace and obedience are not in opposition to one another. Salvation and obedience are not in opposition to one another. God is merciful and full of grace. And as a part of and a condition of receiving that grace that he extends to us, he expects a response on our behalf, what the Bible calls faith. And then that leads us into a discussion of what that means, what faith is. Hebrews eleven six. it is diligently seeking God. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so you have God's mercy extended to all men and he would have all be forgiven and be brought into fellowship with him and have the hope of heaven. And every spiritual blessing afforded in Christ, but he has linked all of that. He has linked that salvation and fellowship with him with obedience to his teaching. And no one should ever apologize for that or 
feel guilty about it or, or try to diminish that in, in any way. And again, if someone wants to call you, label you a legalist for teaching such, you're in good company because the apostles taught the same thing. Legalism is also not believing that every word in Scripture is important because all Scripture is inspired of God, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture that we have handed down to us is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching and reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so we can I don't think we can really stress enough that we must believe and practice and understand the whole counsel of God. Uh, there's no... You know, when Paul writes Second Timothy 3.16, the Holy Spirit is not exaggerating through him. It's all relevant. It's all valuable. And it's all needed to shape me into the kind of man... God would have me to be. And so I, I can't trick myself into thinking or buy into this teaching that love for Christ and love for God somehow divorces me from a relationship to his to his word. And yet, sadly, that's the very thing that so many sectarians seem to be teaching. And it is of utmost importance. It is worth studying and understanding it is worth arguing about legalism is not arguing about the details within scriptures and you find examples of that throughout the new testament you know the lord himself jesus did this in order to make a point to the sadducees in matthew 22 31 and 32 and then, you know more than one occasion you know he would tell people you you err because you don't know the scriptures when they were trying to confront him with scripture Right, that was Satan's motive testing him in Matthew chapter 4. He wielded Scripture, or at least tried to wield Scripture against Jesus. And so we can learn from his example. We can learn from his attitude that he describes in John 14, 31, when he says, So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. I don't believe he was a man who would say it's it's ridiculous to try and parse through the details. No, he he certainly wanted us to understand there are fundamental teachings in the Word of God that we must understand and obey before we can get to the others, as he does in Matthew twenty three, when he's showing that the Pharisees had neglected the weightier things of the law, justice and mercy faith and as they were nevertheless tithing mint and dill and cumin but he says these you ought to have done without neglecting the others so a lot of, a lot of folks i don't think understand the seriousness of such a charge when they accuse someone of being pharisaical or legalistic and so now as i mentioned earlier let's think about who the Pharisees were, how are they described in, in the New Testament? And one of the things that you find early on in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, is that they trusted in the fact that they were descendants of Abraham for their salvation. And this was the very thing that John the Baptist 
wanted to dispel in their minds, right? Say not to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, because out of any one of these stones, God can make a child of, of Abraham. But he says, rather, repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So you see the emphasis on obedience again in John's teaching to these men. Uh, but they put so much stock in their heritage and family that they were convinced just being a physical descendant of Abraham meant that they were justified in God's sight. And the reality is, as John is telling them, this has nothing to do with uh, your salvation. Um, it, But it does have everything to do with your pride and your physical lineage. And the truth was and is still, unless we bear fruit in keeping with repentance, the fact that we're descendants of anyone physically is, is meaningless. God chose Abraham and used his family for a specific purpose in the history of the world, and that was to bring his son into the world uh, through that family, uh, through one particular part of it, the tribe of Judah. Uh, but ultimately, God would make descendants of Abraham by by faith, and this is what Paul goes on to teach us in Galatians 3, um, 27 through 29, that those who belong to Christ are Abraham's descendants, uh, those who share the faith of, of Abraham. It had nothing to do ultimately with a physical connection, uh, but a spiritual one. And so we are guilty of being pharisaical when we put our confidence in you know, the phony things that the Pharisees did. Also, any, you know, fleshly mark of pride that we can think of. For some in the New Testament, it was circumcision. It was, uh, you know, being a member of a particular sect, um, observances of dietary restrictions. You know, you read through the epistles and you can find any number of examples of that. Um, but ultimately, it is our submission to God's truth about us and about him and following through with that, uh, that makes us acceptable to him. Another mark that you see of identifying the Pharisees in the New Testament is that they added traditions uh, to God's word. And not, not that they just had traditions, but that they specifically elevated their traditions to be equal in authority with the word of God. And you see this in Mark chapter seven, among other places where Jesus is indicting them for this very thing, right? They're demanding that you wash your hands before you eat, which is a good practice, right? Um, for reasons that are not spiritual, but they had made this, uh, they had bound this as God's word when in fact it, it wasn't. Uh, even though we're talking about something that's not inherently wrong, washing hands or washing dishes or anything like this, uh, the the trouble is is that none of those things were commanded, that they were binding. And so when they used their traditions to judge others, they crossed the line. And this is a mark of pharisa pharisaism that we must avoid as, as well. And we will, 
And we will go a long way in helping ourselves as we commit and recommit to abiding in the, the truth and being satisfied with nothing less than the truth and not trying to go beyond it. Right? As Paul told the Corinthians, don't go beyond what is what is written. And closely associated with this behavior of elevating traditions to be equal with the Word of God, they also negated God's commandments with some of their own traditions. So they would keep their traditions uh, not only alongside of God's Word, or at least they thought, but they would keep it at expense of God's Word. And this, again, you see in Mark chapter 7, verses 8 through 9 and, and 13, wherein Jesus gives them the example of Corbin and their tradition. Right? If any of you have something that would be of benefit to your father and mother, you know that God is said to honor your father and mother. And yet, when you have something that would help them, you declare it as Corbin. And so you think that frees you from your obligation. And he says, thus you negate the word of God by your tradition. Or you literally bring, bring it to nothing. Which is a sad commentary. Uh, and this again is something that we certainly don't want to be guilty of. Another description that's used of Bible writers with regard to the Pharisees is that they rejected God's purpose for themselves by rejecting John's baptism. You see this in Luke 7 and verse 30. It says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Uh, and that should come as no surprise given the previous points, right? If they were willing to circumvent the word of God that they claim to serve uh, and uphold their traditions or equate their traditions with the, the word of God, then when God commanded something through John, namely to be baptized, they negated that as well, right? They would just say, that's no, that's not important. Or they would try to argue their way out of it or diminish it in some way. So that is the spirit of Pharisaism, as it's revealed in, in the New Testament. And lastly, that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. This is another sad picture that Jesus paints in Luke 18, 9, where he tells the parable of the publican or tax collector who was praying alongside of a Pharisee. And he tells this parable specifically to convict those there in the audience who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, like the individual in this parable who prayed to God that he gave alms and fasted twice a week and thanked God that he was not like the poor sinning tax collector over there. And Jesus says, on the other hand, the tax collector was not willing to lift his eyes up to heaven, but he was beating his chest and crying out for mercy, crying out to God for mercy. And Jesus says that is the individual who went down to his house justified, not the other man. And so the problem there, again, is this, this self-trust that is, we see, linked with despising others. The real issue here, as in other places, is that their heart was far from God. That, and that was the real problem of the Pharisees, right? They, they claimed to be the guardians of truth and claimed to serve Moses and be teacher, you know, teach the people 
Uh, but in reality, they were anything but those things. They had corrupted the truth. Jesus says, you take away the key of knowledge. You tie up heavy burdens for men to bear. You place them on, and you're not willing to lift your own fingers to bear those burdens, Luke eleven forty six, And so they weren't even true to their own ideals. So he just, he tears them down constantly and exposes them because their, their behavior really betrayed what was in their hearts. And that was the main issue is that they really had no love for God, but they had a lot of love for one another and a love for the glory that they received from one another. John chapter five, which Jesus says was the obstacle keeping them from receiving the glory of God. Uh, they had a love for money. This is another commentary in the new Testament. The, they laughed at Jesus when he said, God can, uh, excuse me, man cannot serve both God and mammon or money, but he will love one and hate the other. Um, they thought that that was funny and mocked him for it. So, these are the marks of Pharisaism, and there's certainly more I think we could add to the discussion, uh, but I'll, I'll leave it at there for you. Leave it there for your consideration. But I think the big takeaway is that just because someone reiterates or is explaining what Scripture means by being justified by works or declaring that obedience is necessary for salvation or the way that Jesus put it in Matthew 7, that the one who does the will of God will enter his kingdom. There's no need to call that individual a legalist or being pharisaical. In fact, that's that's the complete opposite of what being legalist and pharisaical is. Right? This, this is the very these are the very things God calls us to do to submit to him uh, from from the heart. And the reality is in 2 Corinthians 5:10 is that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ we're going to be judged for what we have done what we have done and be recompensed based on what what we have done in the body whether good or evil. So there's no need to call that kind of indi- that individual a legalist he's he's or she is simply repeating what the scripture teaches. Scripture explicitly says these very things. And also, if someone wants to label you a Pharisee or something similar that happens to be trending these days, just remember who the Bible says those men actually were and compare yourself against the truth of that scripture and your life. Examine your own life. Uh, And if you are not a staunch defender of your own traditions and innovated error that you've made equal to God's law, you're not being Pharisaical. You know, measure yourself by those points we considered earlier. Examine all things, test all things, hold fast to that which is good and abhor what is evil. First Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. Well, thanks for tuning in. I look forward to studying with you again.